Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, we're recording this at the beginning of 2023, and the news is full of layoffs, layoffs in the tech sector mostly. They're not always being handled with a lot of sensitivity. Now, that's true for the people who are being laid off. We have stories about them you know, just finding out by email or showing up to work and not being able to get in. It's also true for the ones who are left behind because having mass layoffs where you work is traumatizing. We're also being hit with all kinds of bad news from things happening in the world. And people also have their own bad news in their personal lives and they have to go to work. So if you're an organization or you're a manager in an organization, how do you help workers deal with all of it? Are there ways to offer support or at least not make the situation any worse than it is? And, you know, are there different ways to handle this, whether we're talking about a trauma that originated at work or a trauma that somebody's dealing with that maybe originated somewhere else? Well, it's definitely time to talk about these issues. I'm lucky to be joined today by Catherine Manning to do that. Now, Catherine is the author of The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Competent Response to Trauma on the Job. She has a lot of interesting thoughts on what can be done and why it needs to be done, because if you don't help people deal with trauma, you pay the price in terms of productivity, absenteeism, and the fact that unhappy people don't really give peak performance. I had a really good discussion with Catherine. Please stay with us to hear it. Trauma in the Workplace. To talk about that, I'm joined by Catherine Manning. She's the author of The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Competent Response to Trauma on the Job. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, it's really such a hot topic right now because I think people feel like they're going through trauma from a lot of different directions. I'd like to ask about your own career, like how you got interested in this area and what brought you here. Um, well, really, I've been working with people in trauma for most of my adult life. I started off um, as soon as I got to college, I started working at the local domestic violence shelter all through uh, college and then law school. I worked at shelters for domestic violence and rape crisis. After college, I ended up at the United States Justice Department, where I was a senior attorney advisor on victims' rights. And my role there was to help the department in its response to victims in a wide variety of cases, anything from huge fraud cases to terrorism to child exploitation. And one of the things I started to realize is that people didn't need different things based on what they were a victim of. So there weren't wildly different things that a victim of identity theft needed than a victim of human trafficking. Everybody needed to feel seen and acknowledged. Everybody needed referrals to resources, for instance. And then I started to realize that it wasn't just the victims in the cases who needed those things. It was my colleagues, too. If I had a colleague, for instance, whose father was dying or another who was dealing with an abusive boss, I realized I was using the same skills I was using to support victims in the cases to support these colleagues. And it really brought home to me that these issues of of trauma and distress are much more widespread than I think people realize. Um, In 2018, 
when Me Too happened, that was what really galvanized my um, goals because I felt on the one hand thrilled about Me Too because these were issues I've been thinking about for so long, but also a little frustrated and, and sometimes even angry because I felt like Me Too put a lot on survivors, said to people, share your story. Everybody needs to hear your story. But without an understanding that when somebody shares a story of trauma with you, you have an obligation to listen in a certain way, be supportive, offer them any help that they need. It seemed like that second piece was really missing um, from the discussions around Me Too. And so I thought, well, what is it that you would say? You know, you've been doing this work for a while. What is it that you think that people should be doing when somebody discloses a story of trauma in the workplace? And that's what ultimately led to my book. It's five steps. And my goal is to just make it as accessible and practical as possible. Um, none of us are, are aiming to be therapists for our colleagues or our employees. This is really, I think of it as just, it's first aid, right? It's kind of the, the CPR for mental health in the workplace. It gives you enough to be able to get through a, a difficult conversation, let somebody know that you care, and then help them get on to the experts who can take them on their next steps. It's interesting that you mentioned all these different examples. I first saw your name in an article you wrote, I guess, for Fast Company, and we're taping this in January 2023. You referenced the Buffalo Bills football player, uh, Hamlin, who was injured and for had some kind of episode in front of a huge audience, but also in front of his teammates. And, you know, you make the point that that's a workplace trauma for those guys, right? Talk about that and how it was handled, whether you think it was handled well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was traumatizing for the players on the field, obviously for his family, who were all there watching. Um, also for the first responders who were who were thinking, I've got the eyes of millions upon me, and am I going to be able to save this man's life or not? And then in addition, for all of those viewers, the ones who were there live in person, but also for people who were watching it unfold from their own living rooms, I, I saw numerous um, recountings of people who were very traumatized by seeing that. Now, here's the thing. These issues of workplace injury and even workplace violence are not unique to football. These issues happen all the time, every day in workplaces around the world. I've spoken with leaders who talked about um, you know, huge accidents in the workplace or um, one, one man who heads up a, a company that has a large factory where there were two um, factory workers who had been in a relationship and the man came in to work one day and shot and killed his girlfriend on the factory floor. So you think about all of those individuals who witnessed that. Um, there are suicides, there are numerous ways that these issues of violence and um, and trauma injury can show up in our workplaces. And sometimes these issues of trauma come in without us even being aware that they're there. They sort of sneak in quietly. For instance, we don't know in our workplaces who might be going through a divorce, who might be struggling with alcoholism or addiction or maybe a, a chronic illness that they're having to manage. So there are all sorts of ways that trauma shows up at work and it affects us. It affects our ability to engage in the workplace, our communication skills, our absenteeism and turnover. If we can get better at supporting each other through those hard times at work, it really is a way of 
amplifying our, our trust, right? When, when you think back in your own life, the people who have shown up for you in your hardest moments, those are your people, right? And, you know, maybe if you think back right now to a time where you had um, something really difficult going on in your life and you thought, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this week. Maybe I don't know how I'm going to make it through this night. And you think about who showed up for you then, I'm willing to bet that even if you haven't spoken to that person in a decade, if they texted you right now and asked for help, you would drop everything to there for them. Because that's what happens when we show up for people in their hard times, they will show up for us forever. And that is true at the organizational level as well. I know so many organizations are struggling right now about concerns about recession, depression, what's going to happen. I promise you that if you can learn how to support your employees through this and through all of the issues they're facing, they will stand by you forever. Well, I wonder if that's going to happen because right now we're hearing about layoffs. I don't know that they're being handled all that well. Um, People are being told, oh, did you not check your email? You don't work here anymore. Or coming into work and the locks are changed. I mean, that has to be trauma. Absolutely. And it's really, um, it's so unnecessary, right? There are so many better ways to handle that. It's interesting. I heard Adam Grant say recently that the research shows that layoffs never pay off in the long run, that you end up laying off people who you didn't realize were critical to the business and the people that you keep are thinking, well, I know I'm probably next. And so they start looking at at an exit as well. So I think that's the first thing is to really think through as a layoff essential. Um, But if there is really no way around it, remember that these are human beings that you are are dealing with. They are people who have um, a lot riding on this job. And if you can treat them with respect and support through this, even as they are walking out the door, um, they are going to continue to be an advocate for you out in the world. And my goodness, don't we all need more of those? Okay, so how do you do that? Let's look at the football example. They did stop the game, but there was a lot of criticism that you know they didn't move faster. What's the best response in something like that? It is really hard. And, I, you know, I would want to get input from the people who are most closely affected. I think when you are talking about this type of workplace injury or, you know, an extreme event like that, I think the key is always to start with the people who are closest to the incident. And so I think, for instance, saying to family members right there, do you want us to stop all the recordings? Do you want us to just stop transmission right now? Um, And I think at that point, maybe seeing what you can do about, is it possible to put some sort of um, barrier up? Is there a tarp or something so that there can be privacy as they're working on Mr. Hamlin? Um, doing what you can at all times to try to respect both the um, the privacy and the choice of the people who are most directly affected. To me, the hallmarks of a trauma-informed workplace are always going to be clarity and choice. So clarity means here are the options, here's what's possible, and then finding out from that individual what is it that you would choose and then doing what you can to honor that choice. Now, I know you've written about managers needing to be good listeners. What does that mean? How do you do that? Listening is one of those things that I feel like everybody feels like, oh, yes, listening is important and I know how to do it. But um, often we are not as good at it as we think we are. 
When I talk about listening, what I really mean is active listening, which is more than just being quiet and letting the person talk. It means creating the circumstances where the person feels comfortable opening up. And there are a few things we can do for that. Number one, give them your full attention. You know, don't keep glancing at your watch or at your phone. Make sure that they know that you are there with them. Ask questions. No better way to show somebody that you want to hear what they are are sharing with you than by asking them about them. Who, what, where, when, all great questions. What happened next? What did you do then? All of those show that you are interested in what they're saying. Um, And then another um, of my favorite active listening techniques techniques is looping. And that's literally just repeating back a few words of what the person has just shared. So maybe the person says, I'm just really frustrated by everything my dad is going through right now. And you say back, gosh, you must be so frustrated about everything your dad is going through right now. Right? It almost sounds like a trick. You're literally just mimicking them. But in my experience, it can be incredibly validating for people. Number one, it demonstrates you're listening because you're actually repeating it back. But also using their exact words can be really validating for them. Frustrated is a little different than angry or mad or upset. And when you use their language back, it can be very validating. Now, here's the thing. I think that the more senior we get in our positions, the less good we get at this. Because how do you become more senior? By being a really good problem solver, by being able to spot issues and quickly um, find solutions to them. And it becomes almost instinctive in us the more senior we get in our careers to the point where somebody may come to you and be talking about, you know, I'm really worried about my father. And you are instantly starting to think about either how do I reframe this to be a positive or how do I solve this problem for them? Now, Maybe what this person needs is just somebody who can hear what they're saying. There are a lot of studies that show the most impact we can have is by giving people room to talk about what's bothering them. So in particular, for those of you out there who are managers or more senior in your your career, I would urge you to really focus on when somebody comes to you with a problem, don't leap to the solution. Just give it a second and make sure you're really listening to what they say and then ask them, how can I help? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a different guest, sort of slightly different context, quoting somebody in management saying, in North America particularly, we're taught management is about being strong, directive, saying these words. And actually, it's about being quiet sometimes. And that's not part of what we're taught. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I think I think it is really um, it's essential for um, good management. I mean, there have been numerous studies that have shown that empathy is the number one skill for leaders in the workplace, from frontline managers all the way through the C-suite. That is the skill that has the biggest impact on success, and yet only a minority of managers are rated at high in empathy. Are, are there examples of companies or individuals even who've done this well? things you could say, you know, let's emulate this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I one of the companies that I've been so impressed with um, is Newland. Um, they're a pharmaceutical company based in India. And I started working with their CEO, Suchet 
Doug V. Larry, um, a few years ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And he has done just a phenomenal job of steering his company with care and empathy through the pandemic. You know, India was so hard hit during the pandemic. Um, but one of the things that he did was really ensure that he was meeting not just the physical safety needs of his employees, but also the psychological safety needs. So he did things like um, a lot of communication all through the pandemic. He visited each of the factories every single week and talked with people about what they were experiencing. He had a lot of resources available to them, including um, physical, you know, medical support resources. So there were actually doctors on staff who could help them if there were any concerns about exposure to COVID. And one of the things he did that I really love is he wrote a letter to the family of every single employee, thanking them for the steps they were taking to stay safe, because that meant that their family member was able to continue coming to work. So I just feel like they've done a phenomenal job. Another company that I've been working with um, recently is Ketchum, which is a communications company and consulting. Um, we've done a lot of work. Um, we've trained now their 50 top leaders across the United States in trauma-informed listening and trauma-informed care. We're now rolling it out so that every single employee at Ketchum, including everybody from you know billing to, <laughs> to their graphic designers, everybody is going to be trained in trauma-informed support so that they continue to support one another through hard times because we know they're happening all the time. And they're also bringing this to the work that they do for their clients so that they can provide a trauma-informed perspective perspective on the communications that they do. Interesting. So what else would you tell managers and organizations? Because I have to think it's a new year. People are making resolutions or plans, especially with all that's going on, because we know there'll be some turmoil ahead. What would you like to see them doing? Um, I think the key is first understanding how it is to support individuals in the organization through difficult times. And that's really what my book is about. Um, so the book is, here are the five steps to a, a supportive conversation with somebody in trauma. And that's really just giving you the basics on, you know, when you pick up the phone or somebody comes into the office and says, there's something I have to tell you right? So that you're ready no matter what it is that walks through your door. And I think that's essential because the way that we support people one-on-one -on -one doesn't just affect that individual, although it certainly does. It has a big impact on that individual, but it also impacts everybody else who's watching. And a lot of people are going to be watching. Well, how did he deal with that when so-and-so came to him? So it's important that we have those basic skills and how to support somebody one-on-one. -on -one. But then from there, I think it's essential that we take that and apply it on an organizational level. So how are we soliciting input from employees. We have opportunities for people to say, hey, I'm struggling right now. Um, and when people do share things that they're struggling with, what are they met with? Are we making sure that they are getting acknowledged, that they have supportive listening, and then also that they're able to get supports that they need. Um, there are so many just phenomenal uh, new kinds of resources that people have begun to implement in recent years. Everything from miscarriage leave to culturally specific mental health supports. There's just been an explosion of mental health supports in the workplace. The problem is a lot of people don't know that they're out there. So we have to make sure both that they're in place and also 
that we keep talking about them because this is one of the challenges. Um, you know, you might have phenomenal mental health resources and you tell everybody at a big kickoff meeting. Well, for somebody who maybe doesn't need it in that moment, it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. But six months later, they might really need that support. So we have to make sure we're talking about these issues both widely and repeatedly. And then the final thing is make sure that we are not We don't just treat this as a one and done and then walk away and not come back. I have a friend who is Asian American, and she told me that um, in a staff meeting, somebody said to her, so is the anti-Asian hate thing still happening? (laughs) And she thought, oh, no, it's all wrapped up. Totally, totally over now. You know, I, I think so often organizations will make these big statements. For instance, after the murder of George Floyd, there were so many public statements made. I don't know how many organizations have really carried through with those. It's important if we want to be reliable, we have to be able to follow through on these promises that we're making. And then, so we have to return to these issues again and again, but we also, as leaders, have to make sure that we are returning to ourselves, that we are actually doing what we can to manage our own energy, taking care of our own mental and physical health, because as leaders, your um, your attitude, the way that you show up at work has an outsized impact on everybody in that organization. If you walk in and you're very, very stressed, you're flustered, you're, you're short-tempered, that's really going to infect everybody around you. So it's essential that you take good care of yourself as you're taking care of your team. Catherine, so much to think about there. I hope people were listening and uh, will take your advice. Catherine Manning is the author of The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Competent Response to Trauma and the Job. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to learn more about Catherine and her book, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at at RelentlessEco. Now, if you did like this discussion about work and the future of work and the issues around that, please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That will help people to find us and will help us to keep these discussions going. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkinthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a Relentless Economics production. 